I think Amanda McKelly wins for longest interview this season. I feel badly about it because I kept her on the phone for almost two hours. Um, And she was very gracious with her time. And she was just about to have a baby, which you'll see from this conversation is a pretty big deal. Amanda dealt with infertility issues herself for a while and wound up making a documentary about other women struggling with fertility, specifically focused on a contest in Las Vegas where an IVF doctor was giving away a round of IVF through a contest. It was very, very controversial. A lot of people made a lot of noise about it. And Amanda just thought it was interesting and wanted to dig into how the contest got started how the people that were involved in it were affected, and what it said about the commodification of reproduction. It's really interesting. You should check it out. It's on Netflix. It's called Vegas Baby. Well, you've heard of contests to win a cruise or an iPad, but have you ever heard of winning a free baby? The Share Institute in Las Vegas has a national contest, a video contest, offering free in vitro treatments to one lucky couple. Welcome. Can everybody hear me at the back as well? For those that say that there shouldn't be a contest, I agree. There should be insurance. But that's not how the world works. Sincerely hope that you'll consider us for uh, for this opportunity. I know there's so many stories, and how can you vote? Please vote. We're asking for you to vote for us. I have no idea how I'm going to feel if this doesn't work. Those who don't win, they get loans, they max credit cards, they borrow money from family. We're already in debt. Do we bankrupt this family to try to fulfill this dream? I just hope everything works out. But whatever happens, we're in this together. Me being able to be public about this gives meaning and purpose to the pain that I've gone through. <sighs> I've heard her say, what's the point of being married if you can't have kids? Boy, that's your, that's your stuck here. Anyway, it was interesting to talk to Amanda, too, because she was very much going through her own ordeal with fertility as she was making this film. And she had a lot of insight into that whole process. And she also talked a lot about how her family life growing up impacted a lot of the decisions that she eventually made around whether or not she was going to have children herself and how she would do that and what it would look like and all those kinds of things. We'll get into all of that and more in this episode. I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is Tell Me About Your Mother. I was hoping you could sort of repeat for me just how you came to this topic and, and what like drew you to it in the first place. If it was like... I don't know, like if you were looking for an IVF story or if this crazy contest caught your attention yeah, first. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. So my husband and I met slightly later in life. Um, we were both very career-driven, independent people in creative fields. And when we met, having a, a baby wasn't even in our top three. Like it was completely off my radar. I was kind of blissfully ignorant about my, my own uh, biological clock. And, and then, you know, things shifted as I started to get into my late thirties, I, I realized that I hadn't really been true to myself or, you know, really in touch with my own desires and all my issues around family and, 
you know, the usual yada yada about divorced parents. And, you know, I'd really sort of latched onto my career as my, my main source of my identity. And it took me a couple of years to even be able to articulate to him, like, it was like the Fonz, like, you know, the Fonz can't say, I'm sorry. Like, I couldn't say, I want to have a baby. Like, it was hard for me to say it. It was a really interesting process that I went through of like realizing that I wanted to be a mother and, and have a family. Um, so that took us a while. And then um, I was 39 by the time we started trying. And again, blissfully ignorant, I thought, oh, well, the hard part's done. I've decided I want to have a family. So now let's get, let's get to it. And, you know, at the time, it was kind of fun. We were, like, getting naked and trying to make a baby. And we were like, yes, look at us. We had all grown up and we're going to have a family. And then it's like, big shock. Didn't work. And at the time, of course, we assumed, and like many people, we thought that female fertility would be our challenge. We went to see a specialist. We walked in there still a little bit cocky, kind of like, look, we're not really like desperate to have a kid. Like we're not going to do IVF. Like maybe we'll do IUI. Let's just see what this guy has to say. You know, like, again, just I look back and I sort of have to laugh at, at, at our attitude, but it's, I think it's really common. Right. I mean, we also had this issue of being nonchalant about it. Like I think at the time I thought, you know, I think, I think I thought to myself, well, if this works or it doesn't work, I'll still be okay. Like I don't, I didn't feel committed to a plan, but I felt curious enough that I thought, well, oh, if we just need a little bit of help, why not try? And we go to the reproductive doctor and the first conversation we had, just his face dropped when he looked at our sperm results. And he said, I'm sorry to tell you, like your sperm count and motility is so low. The only way you guys could get pregnant is through IVF. Mm -hmm. And my husband was shocked and it totally rocked his world. Yeah. He had no idea he had a sperm issue. Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> me, no men do. It's crazy yeah. to me. Like, I, I actually, I talked to a male fertility uh, expert. He's a urologist, but he's kind of become this male fertility god. And he was like, I think IVF is the worst thing to happen to men's health in the last 20 years. And I was like, whoa, wow. that's a really like strong statement. And he was like, well, it's great. It's like a really great fix for a lot of... Um, couples who are at a certain point, but it has enabled people to just gloss over the whole like male fertility thing. We just do IVF, which he's like, which, you know, puts the woman through all, all kinds of stuff. The guy doesn't have to do anything. And then like, and I'm like, yeah, that's true. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's interesting. Like how I just, I feel like that still just doesn't get discussed that much. The, the male side that, of it. I mean, that could be a whole nother documentary. Really. It really could. Yeah. Yes. I, I interviewed 120 women. This is what I mean when I say I over-report things. <laughs> right, like, right. I, um, and I think it was like 70% of them that it was the male that was the problem. And But like they only discover that after years of the woman thinking that it was her problem and taking all kinds of drugs to address a problem that she didn't actually have. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's nuts. Well, yeah. And I think statistically they say that like, I think it's like 30% of fertility problems in America anyway, are female, 30% are male and 30% are unexplained. That tends to be the data that we've come across. Um, but it is interesting how just culturally, I think women tend to be more proactive 
and a little more decisive about this. So for a million reasons, yeah, I had already done a million tests. And then all he did was jack out off in a cup. And then all of a sudden we had this result. Um, but we didn't know why he had such a low count at the time. And, and then the guy was like, but look, Amanda, you're not exactly a spring chicken. You actually have really good egg count for your age, but we don't have a ton of time, right? So I was like, okay, so shit, what do we do now? And so we walked out of that appointment feeling just floored and it completely rocked our world. Yeah, We had to com- look, look at our finances, our relationship, how bad did we want this? Which at the time really meant how bad did I want this? Because yeah. I was sort of like leading the charge. Yeah. And um, so we, we pooled our, our resources and put our chins up and they thought we had good chances because I had a good egg count. And they said, you know, for the sperm, the IVF usually solves the problem. So I went into that first round of IVF with, you know, we used our, our save, we emptied our savings account. And I went into that first round of IVF feeling like I had a really good shot. And I'm not sure that anyone really told me what the national averages were. I'm not sure I had any sense of the odds or the gamble that we Mm -hmm. were taking. (laughs) Um, But I... Yeah, that's another one that I... Yeah, yeah. That I feel like people... I don't know. Just like doesn't... I think people kind of think that if they just get the money together and do AVF, then that's that's that. But the it's not a sure thing. You count like... One round of IVF nationwide in America, women of all ages, the average is thirty percent. The average, okay. So if you're twenty, if you're twenty-five, you could be in the high forties or fifties, and if you're thirty-nine, you could be down to fifteen or twenty, depending on your okay. condition. But again, I didn't have any education about. I didn't have a sense that this was a gamble so much as I thought this was a medical procedure that we were paying for that was going to solve our problem. When it failed and we got our first negative, I was completely shocked. And I was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> what do you mean it didn't work? Because it was like we did genetic testing and we just didn't get any normal eggs. And so that's when the education really started for me. And as a filmmaker, I thought, what can I do to help educate other people is there a film to be had here somewhere? I don't like films that are just talking heads and just people lecturing at me, but this seems like something that everyone I know is talking about. You know, there's so many people that have delayed having families, um, you know, that are, are having problems and are, you know, facing this, this, this immense um, financial, emotional and physical cost for something that isn't even guaranteed. And we don't really talk about it. So I sort of had that in my I sort of had that in my head, but I didn't quite know. And we were my my producer and I were researching other other film ideas at the time while I was trying to to get pregnant. And I was googling financing options for our second round of IVF, which I never thought I would do. Like I never thought I'd do the first one. I never thought I'd do a second one, you know. But here I was, like, oh, should we do it again? And that's when I came across this contest. And I thought, holy crap. This is like the craziest thing I've ever heard of. But on the other hand, I kind of get it. Like these people feel desperate. This is not covered by insurance. It's incredibly expensive. And they're going to put it all out there to compete for a free round of IVF. Like this is such an American, a uniquely American healthcare story. Um, so I, it really is. I felt it like I, I felt like instantly like this is a film. This is some. This is a way that I can make a film that is not a dry lecture talking head film that's going to be 
um, a, a unique way into seeing diverse people from all over the country that are facing this similar challenge. And I never thought the clinic would say, yeah. like, I mean, I, Sarah, my producer was like, well, let's just call them up, you know, let's just give them a call. And I was like, oh my God, they'll never agree to this. And they were doors open. They were like, yeah, come on down. And the, well, and the article that I had seen was in the New York times and it was very critical. Like it was like, these contests are exploitative. This is, you know, crazy marketing. And I said to them, like, I mean, I normally wouldn't do this, but they were so open to me coming. I was like, you do realize that like a lot of people are going to think this is bad medicine, you know, that you're using marketing and this kind of, and they were like, yeah, no, we're used to that. Like we're, we're not ashamed of anything we're doing. Like just come see for yourself what you think of it. So I thought they were very brave to allow a, a you know progressive <laughs> West Coast filmmaker to come out to Vegas to to film their process. And um, you know, from day one of shooting, I was just instantly hooked on this this journey. It was not a film that got funded by outside sources. It was an independent film. It was a labor of love. I we spent several years shooting and editing it mm-hmm. while I continued to pursue my own. IVF journey. That's so, so interesting. That's so you were, it was totally in, in parallel. I think that's really interesting too. Yeah. It's like, don't try this at home <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because the only gamble, the only gamble that's less, that actually has worse odds than IVF is documentary filmmaking. <laughs> <laughs> so to be doing both at the same time, it was kind of financial suicide, but um, oh, you know, I'm very glad I did it, but it was it was definitely a labor of love for me and everybody else who worked on her. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to, I want to kind of delve into um, some of the stuff you said there. Cause I think it's all really interesting. And, um, and I also want to talk about like what you think about the contest. Like, do you think that it's exploitative or um, I don't know, like there, I, there was a good line in there with the, where the guy, um, Dr. Sure said, you know, yeah, like I think it should be covered by insurance, but it's not. So, you know, <laughs> this is one way that we can help people, which I was like, yeah, I mean, fair enough. You know, like um, if if it's giving some people a chance, then that seems okay. But then there is this whole kind of, I don't know. I, I was, I had like no clear opinion one way or the other. So I'm curious if you, if you kind of felt one way or the other when you started and, and like how you feel about it now. Well, when I start, when I started, I thought it was bananas. And when I actually met the people who entered the contest and even spoke to people like after the contest was over who had lost or felt, you know, sort of miffed, you know, as a journalist, like the the sort of filmmaker part of me, like I wanted to find someone who was like enraged and angry and mad because I wanted to explore that side of it. But truthfully, that really wasn't the story. Like the story was much bigger, which is that this contest is cuckoo because it's coming from a cuckoo world. And the cuckoo world is a place where people are reading celebrity magazines and seeing people having babies into their 50s and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars and either admitting it or not. And then you have, you know, it's a sort of post-feminist problem of people delaying having families, but also this problem that's been going on since the beginning of time, which is people having infertility diagnoses from a young age and, and you know, not really having a lot of opportunity. And now we have science exploding faster than we can keep up with. And we have the most expensive reproductive medicine practice on the planet and the least regulated reproductive 
medicine <laughs> practice on the planet in our country. So it's kind of a recipe for disaster, to be honest, because it's like there's all this desire and lack of education and dialogue in an educated way about it. And the science is, is growing so fast and it's there for the taking for those who can afford it. So I think, I think, I think the contest is emblematic of a larger social problem. So I don't see, I don't really have like a particular opinion about the contest. And I think that's just like part of how I, well, that's not true. I, it, it, for me, the contest is emblematic of a larger problem. So I just, I can't help but see it in a larger frame. And I don't think it's as simple as pointing a finger at the bad guy and saying, Dr. Sure is a bad guy. He should stop this contest. Because whether his contest happens or not, this social problem is still going to exist. So, so for me, it's more of a philosophical problem. And I think that kind of frustrated people when we were marketing the movie that they wanted me to be like, down with the contest or, you know, but it, the truth is the contest ended up being canceled anyway, because he ended up being bought by a large corporation that thought it was, you know, risky. So I thought it was a, a sort of interesting, like, well, let's put it this way. People feel very uncomfortable with the idea of marketing in medicine in general. And they feel especially uncomfortable with marketing around the baby business. And it is a business. Um, but I think we have to be honest with ourselves that like, we, you know, American healthcare is, is, is privatized and for profit. And even making babies in America is for profit. And that's just the way it is right now. Like, and, and that's not going to change. So this is like one story of the, the bigger picture of how the baby business affects the average Joe or Jolene <laughs> um, emotionally and financially. And, and how are we going to arm ourselves as citizens with information and, and support so that we can navigate these waters you know, I, I don't think that everybody should be running out to get IVF, but I think if you really, really want to have a biological family, you should get educated about what your options are. And, and there's a much bigger conversation to be had about adoption and all that stuff. But this film was specifically about this, this IVF, the world of IVF. Yeah. Yeah. I'm <clears throat> like, one of the things I've been um, kind of grappling with in the book is this idea that like we um i feel like we have this really weird mix of being very into the idea of families and procreation in this country <laughs> um but then like when we do when we do give kids sex ed for example it's like very focused on just like the biological details it's like how sex works and STDs and like wet dreams and maybe periods. That's yeah, it. You yeah, know, it's like yeah. the functional <laughs> stuff, right? But we right, don't actually right. talk about like what what do you see as your reproductive future? What like do you think you might want to have kids? Here's the reality of that. Here's how much it costs. Here's the reality of fertility. For like for I even I talked I interviewed a um a guy who was saying that he had wanted to have kids and felt like he had kind of basically like fucked up his life in that respect because he had chosen a career that is really, you know, requires lots of time and whatever. And he was like, you know, it's just not something that we talk to young men about. Like I, he's like, I actually wish someone had said to me when I was in high school, just planted the seed of like, 
if you want to have kids, like, you know, there might be some careers that aren't a good fit for that, like investment banker, you know, <laughs> or like, right, right. or whatever, or that, you know, like, so I, I kind of, I don't know, I like, I, um, I, I ended up going to Japan because they have like, I, I, I sort of have this, this, um, issue with like how all this stuff gets discussed in the U.S. because I feel like we often default to this like um, kind of idealistic view of Scandinavia and that like if we could just take those policies and put them in place here that would like fix everything and I'm just like well we have a lot of like cultural value stuff underneath that needs to get fixed first yeah and you can't really take another um, culture's solutions and slap it on somewhere else and slap it on yeah everyone's like oh yeah. if we just had this leave policy or if we had like that you know support for fertility technology or whatever then you know it's fine but um but like Japan is a really good example cuz that's what they did they they were so worried about their declining birth rates that they took all these Scandinavian policies and like instituted them but like didn't change anything else and it's oh, no. been a, it's been really interesting it's really interesting to watch because it's like you know like this this woman i met with researches fatherhood in japan and one of the things that they looked at was like well women there were opting out of having kids because men were only putting in like an hour a week of time at home and so women, especially as they increasingly um, were working themselves, were like, I'm not doing this, you know. And so the government was like, OK, well, we need to incentivize more paternal involvement. So we they instituted um, like Sweden style paternity leave and they um, came up with these policies to encourage men with young children to leave work early and all this stuff. And so this woman I met was like, yeah, I've interviewed all these dads and a lot of them want to do all this stuff, but there's like, but it's totally frowned upon within the work culture. So like, well, it's only like 3% of men are doing it, you know? And so um, she was like, you know, we have this huge disconnect between um, like, what did she call it? She called it like context and conduct that like, there's a, a mismatch between those two. Like theoretically, we should have this very egalitarian supportive of families culture but like it, you know the reality is we don't and and I feel like the the US is kind of um I don't know the US kind of has the same thing where it's like we talk a lot about wanting these like idyllic families but then we don't actually have a culture that supports that in any way at any point <laughs> like, no and i i think um, your your yeah. your comment about sex ed is so critical that it's not holistic it doesn't look at family planning as as it fits into real life and no one ever mentions infertility in sex ed and i understand no, why like it's never a, it's a venerable cause to prevent yeah. teen pregnancy but it seems like we're really down right. to the lowest common denominator of just trying to keep the teenage girls from getting knocked up without looking at the bigger yeah. picture and i think literally if we have i don't even know how long sex ed is anymore like what is it what do kids get these days in public yeah. schools is it like a well day? some don't get any it just depends on what state they're in which is ludicrous too um but like if sex ed yeah, was a 10-hour was class then i would just want like even 35 minutes on infertility would make me happy like just like just at mm -hmm. least mention it mm -hmm. <laughs> because i just don't think it's on our radar. yeah you know so no. yeah, no, I we spend our whole lives trying to prevent pregnancy, and then and we really, I think, generally still believe that, um, that it's just up to us to decide. 
Right. And, you know, and it really um, does, it really does yeah. dock your foundations. I mean, what happened for us is that we ended up getting, a, uh, my husband had got a testicular cancer diagnosis. So he, we oh, ended no. up dealing with cancer in the middle of our infertility journey. And it was so aye, interesting aye, aye. to have that parallel experience. And thank God he's in remission now. He's fine. But at the time, it was scary. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, was, it, was, <laughs> it felt like the stakes yeah. were really raised and mm-hmm. we had to shift our focus. And, you know, he went through radiation and the whole nine yards. And then his, inf- his fertility was even more compromised because the radiation killed yes. what was left of his sperm. So all of a sudden, it, it upped the ante. But I will say, in terms of, um, when I'm shifting gears here, but in terms of like, just sort of like the, the sort of, cultural understanding of specifically of infertility it was so interesting to see the different level of support we got when we were going through cancer and the kind of dialogue that happened around that versus what happened around infertility and when i read up more on it it's really interesting because if you look back at how people treated cancer in the 1940s or 50s it was actually kind of similar and like i'm not going to say that like infertility is as hard as cancer. That's a ridiculous thing to say. But in terms of the patient experience, back in the 40s and 50s, if you had cancer, it was shameful. You didn't talk about it. It was something you kept quiet and you just dealt with. And now there's all this awareness around it and support and research. And, 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 you know, it's just much more understood to be part of our culture that people have to face this kind of disease. And how does that affect your identity and your sex life and your wholeness as a person? Um, you know, and people are bringing you dinners mm-hmm. and supporting you and helping you. Like when we were going through infertility, like we didn't really tell a lot of people about it. And truthfully, I don't think there's much sympathy for it because people are like, what's wrong with Eric and Amanda? Why do they, why do they want to have a, a designer baby? Why don't they just go and adopt? And I, and I understand yes. where that comes from <laughs> and I understand why there's that jerk reaction, but um, it's just very ill-informed. Yeah. Well, I don't think people realize that there actually, there isn't this like legion of children out there waiting to be adopted anymore. That's like a thing that existed at one time in the US, but hasn't for a long time. And like, yeah, that whole thing, a lot of, I had a lot of friends that were told like, why don't you just adopt? And they were like, "Ah!" (laughs) well, I think the thing that's tricky is that there still is this very broken foster care system. And there are lots of children that do need homes in the foster care system. But people who are educated about this mm-hmm. know that that's, that's taking on a lot. Like you have to be ready for that. And that's a specific kind of family building and parenting um, process to go through. But gone are the days where there's millions of infants, you know, that are, that are being uh, put up for yes. adoption. And there's a lot of cultural reasons why that has changed. But I, you know, I would love it if, again, it, 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 another documentary, but like, I would love it if more people adopted foster children and fostered foster children and helped, but that's like a, that's actually just like a whole nother thing. And it's not just up to infertile people to solve that problem. And a lot of times, you know, infertile people are kind of the last people that you want to be adopting a foster kid because they're dealing with a lot of emotional baggage. And that's the part that people don't get. This is like a, this, this medical condition also creates psychological conditions that you know you got to work through and i think it's mm-hmm. it's more and more becoming accepted to have psychological support around an infertility diagnosis and you can see that in the you know in one of the couples that 
we we filmed um who had a hard time like they just kept trying and trying and trying and you could see how the need for for an advisor who's not a doctor at some point becomes really critical because the doctor's going to want to get you pregnant the doctor's going to keep trying and trying and trying that's their job is to get you pregnant it's not their job to advise you like how many more times should you try you know <laughs> Okay, I want to ask you something that I've like been thinking of, but I it's like I, I because I'm I you know I grew up like as a feminist and I you know I also delayed having kids. I wanted a career, all these things. It feels like um I don't know sacrilege to say it, <laughs> but I kind of no go for it. I kind of feel like um like so I've been doing all this research and whatever, and I'm like you know I kind of feel like we have um we have tried to restructure women to fit work instead of restructuring work to fit women. Like we're doing all this stuff to make it possible for women to have kids later so that like we can do, you know, like we can be more useful in the workplace or like, because we have to build our careers to a certain point before we can take the time off or whatever. And like, um, I don't know. I'm like, is that really like, helping women ultimately like it's i don't know i i almost am like oh like well are we putting off having kids because that's how the workplace is or because that's what we actually want to do and i'm not sure like i oh i don't think i would have been ready to have kids at no, 25 think, is, but like you know i um, think this is a fascinating conversation i i feel like no i i wasn't ready to have kids at 25 either but i think part of the reason why we're delaying it is because we're not talking about it. We're not planning. And, 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 and as much as I embrace feminism, I think there, you know, there's, there's like 1.0, and 3.0. Like, I think feminism 1.0 was pushing back against motherhood being how we define ourselves. Right. And thank God those women pushed back on that. Yeah. Like, we don't want to be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen without any choices. I love right. the pill. I, I, I am pro-choice. I am very, pro uh women making reproductive choices yeah but now we're in the i would say now we're in the 3.0 of feminism that's like reproductive choice now involves freezing your eggs yeah question mark yes. i mean sure but i agree with you that's not the solution i think that for feminism to truly evolve we have to and this is the work that you're doing that i think is so important is to talk about how does motherhood fit in with our identity if yeah. you choose not to be a mother good on you that's a great choice for you yeah and if you are in denial uh, that you might want to be a mother because you somehow have been steered another direction you know i i feel like in a way i took my feminism too far because i thought that being a mom meant giving into patriarchy i'll yeah. be honest like that yeah. i i was like no that's not me mm -hmm. and the truth is i had to come up with a recipe that worked for me and that was much harder and it and it it just took a long time to figure that out. So yeah. I think it just takes creative thinking. Yeah. So I think sure that the work the workplace thing is a big part of it, but I think that feminism now has to embrace motherhood as part of the equation that we yeah. talk about and feel supported about. And it's not just about like, oh, feminists need to support stay at home moms because there are some stay at home moms. It's like, you no, know, right. we have to go way further back and say like to 20 year old women. And I think, you know, people like Lena Dunham are, are trying to move this conversation forward of like, what, what is your, your identity? It's not just, am I gay or am I straight? 
<laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's yeah. what is family, you know, and I think if we can try to accelerate those conversations, I think it's entirely possible that at least the majority of us could be making informed decisions about whether or not we want to be mothers by 35 instead of 39 or sort of 32. That would be like my goal. Like, I don't think we all need to pop them out at 25, but there's really not some huge difference in your career at 35 and 40. Like, right. I just think I just waited to the because I was scared. You know, right. I was scared that I would lose my career. Yeah. And your identity and all these things. I, I think like there's also this whole aspect of all this stuff um, that like, I don't know. I'm kind of like, well, uh, why are we making this thing that only women can do? Um, I don't know. There, it's, uh, to me, it just feels like part and parcel with the whole like devaluing of stuff, women, stuff that women do in general. <laughs> you know? It's like, oh, OK, so to be right. strong we have to do, we have to mimic men. No, I like, I reject that, you know? <laughs> um, well, I think it's also that, that piece that you, that piece that you talked about too, about men are only now starting to, you know, partake in childcare and yes, child rearing yes. in any sort of like, you know, meaningful way. Then that way you have two partners that are sharing that, commitment and that responsibility, then it's possible that they can have both, you know, but this, you know, both a career and a family, but this idea that like a women can have it all, it's still women doing it all. Yes. And I think that's, that's hard. What, um, I'm curious to, um, to hear, uh, like, I don't know, just like from your own upbringing, what sort of like formed your own ideas about what motherhood is or what, the sort of role of a mother is or what that like identity looks like and like what what did you kind of grow up thinking of it as and then kind of come to think of it as now you know it's it's really interesting because i think this i'm i'm coming to a place of more awareness around this now that i'm about to be a mother and i think it's a hard it's a hard one for me because my well my dad lost his mother when he was very very young and so he was and he was a little bit cut off from his family. Um, my mom and I had a close relationship and she had a, a strong family support, but you know, my parents got divorced when I was eight and both of them were very independent career driven people. Um, you know, <laughs> my, my dad's a, a successful surgeon and my mom is a, a professor of like Shakespearean theory. You know? mm -hmm. And yeah. they, met, they, met, they met when he was at Harvard and she was at Wellesley. And so it was like this very, wow. um, you know, kind of intensely ambitious young people. I mean, they met when they were in their twenties and decided to get married, I think maybe after a positive pregnancy test, which was my sister. Um, uh -huh. and I was born eight years later and the sort of running joke that me and my sister have, which is not funny at all. And I'm sure my parents would die if they heard this, but the joke is that Lisa was right before the wedding and I was right before the divorce. Um, but you know, I don't, think, <laughs> you know, I don't think, I don't think family planning was something that they really excelled at. You know, I yeah. think that yeah. they found themselves in a situation and they were like, well, this seems like a good person to stick this out with, but so as, as much as I feel like I have a loving family now, looking back on it, I think probably as a little kid, I didn't necessarily feel like we had this very purposeful 
family. I felt like we were uh, mm -hmm. four individuals working it out and then not working it out because they didn't end up staying together. But we, you know, mm -hmm. then we had visitation and, you know, and, and I kind of, to be honest, like my, my refuge was with the family dog. Like I connected with animals and I was really like, you know, sort of in my own head and, and into art projects. And I felt supported by my family on some level, but I didn't have this sense of family values that, that I just felt like we were all kind of struggling with it, you know? And I think for me, what that really translated to not so much like even my feelings about motherhood, like I almost couldn't even get there because I was struggling more with just relationships. Because I looked at my own mom as a single woman in her 40s and 50s trying to date, you know, when I was trying to date. So like I was 16 and she was whatever age she was and we're both trying to date. And I, and I felt almost like I felt bad for her and I felt concerned for her. And then I felt concerned for me. Like, what's our future? How do we, how do, how is she going to pursue her Shakespearean theory? And I'm going to pursue my dreams of being a filmmaker and deal with men, you know? And like, I, I think that, that I had to do a whole lot of work and growth and, and it's no shock that like young women spend most of their twenties trying to figure out how to have a relationship. And for me, the career was, was a place where I could control it and I could achieve and I could, you know, get positive uh, feedback and relationships were not so guaranteed for that. <laughs> <laughs> so I think in a way I had kind of like, you know, I don't mean to be like, you know, comparative or qualitative of comparing myself to other people, but I felt almost kind of stunted. Like when I met my husband, I was like, oh, I don't know if relationships really work. Like, you know, I was still in this sort of like, really kind of like rebellious, like independent mode. And, and I was probably 30 at the time. So, you know, I just know, I don't know that I really had faith in, in not, I didn't even think about marriage. Just the thing about like having a, I mean, for me, the idea of like having a committed monogamous long-term relationship seemed like a real high order, tall order. Um, so I think that my images of motherhood were kind of stunted by my fear that both my mom and me would be alone. And, you know, I think that, you know, so kids of divorced parents, you know, I don't know that that's that uncommon, that like that, that somehow we were just destined to be alone. And so once I got over that and I was like, and then I met someone that I was like, Oh, this could work. Then I was like, oh, well then I, could I be a mother? Could I have that? Like, do I want that? Cause I always thought I, I, I didn't think it was on the menu for me, but I think it's because I kind of was just, I don't know if I, I, I don't think I wanted, I definitely didn't want to be alone, but I was fearful that I'd be alone. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. Have you and your um, husband, like had a lot of conversations about what co-parenting will look like for you. I, I asked, I did a whole survey on this too, because this is another thing I discovered kind of goes with the whole, like, we don't talk about family living thing. I surveyed like 200 people and 70% of them answered the question. Like, did you decide ahead of time, like who was going to do what and what the sort of like general breakdown of tasks would be either well, not at all or yeah, not really. But it's funny. We just, we just do things. <laughs> We just do things under like, the wire. Like I think we oh, just guys. figured out last week 
that he's going to have to be changing a lot of diapers. Yeah. Like, and that was like a big challenge mm-hmm. for him because he's really, he's like, he has a gag reflex and he's really freaked out by it. But I, once we did the math, and we, like, we were at our breastfeeding <laughs> class and they were explaining like, well, this is how it works. And we're like, wait, but like, so you're literally saying like the kids on the boob, then the kids off the boob. And I'm like, so really, I think we're just now starting to have those conversations, but I think it's really important. And like, even you asking me that reminds me how important it is. But in terms of like, you know, we're just going like one week at a time. Like if you go long term, looking out to the future, for us in a way, it's like, in some ways it's easier because we work for ourselves and we work from home, which I think is a blessing and a curse. Totally. I had the same exact setup and yes, it is. It's like great and it's great, but it's also I don't know. It's yeah, it is. It's totally good and totally bad at the same time. <laughs> yeah, which is actually the truth about being self-employed on any front that you in look general. At. But I think, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I think that that is probably the challenge of a whole new generation. I can guarantee you, my parents didn't have that conversation because there was no question. interesting story huh we got into a lot around reproductive history too because it's a big part of the book that i've been writing this past year that book is called forget having it all how america messed up motherhood and how to fix it i spent many 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 hours in libraries digging through a lot of archival stuff around how americans have traditionally thought about motherhood what expectations we've always had for moms and how all of that has played into policies and laws and workplace culture and relationships and family life and all the things that impact women, whether they have kids or not. I hope you'll check that book out in the next few months. It should be dropping in November. And in the meantime, you can continue to listen to more episodes of Tell Me About Your Mother. We're releasing one a day for season two until we're done. And there are two more left after this. So tune in, subscribe, please drop us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell Me About Your Mother is produced by me, Amy Westervelt, with additional production help from Michael Ann Petrella and Natalie Wekeser. Our music is by B. Beeman, that's B-H-I-B-H-I-M-A-N, and original illustrations for each episode are drawn by James Guthman. You can follow us on Twitter at About Your Ma or on Insta at TMAMPOD, that's T-M-A-Y-M-P-O-D. We're part of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. That's the network that I co-own with Maya Francis, another journalist. She and I really feel strongly about supporting women podcasters, and we hope you do too. If you feel the same, please check out our Patreon campaign. It's under Critical Frequency, and any donations there benefit all the podcasts on the network. So if you can give, please check it out. If you can only give a little bit of your time, we understand and we'll take it. Please give us a review or a rating at the podcast store or wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us find listeners in the increasingly crowded world of podcasts. If you want to get in touch to suggest someone to interview or you have feedback for a show or just want to talk about your mom in general, feel free to shoot me a note anytime. I'm at amy at criticalfrequency.org. Thanks for listening. See you next time. 